Um, but good to see you all. Thank you for uh, stepping in and, and being a part of this with me. Um, I am an old dog. I don't learn new tricks well, so Zoom has been a challenge to me, I will admit, and you will watch me stumble along. Um, but uh, thanks for your patience from the outset. And uh, again, I'm glad glad we can do this. Um, I do want to just pray as we start this uh, study and, and ask for God to be good to us in it. Um, dear God, I do look to you and ask that you would please be gracious to these friends, um, that as we look at these texts together, you would open our eyes and our ears to see and hear, um, that we would be able to just understand what's there and see it clearly, deal with the significance, the extraordinary claims that are being made. Um, and, and I do pray that, uh, the limitations I bring would not then limit what you do with these texts and what you do for each of us as we study them together. Uh, enable us to be honest and open um, with the text, with you, with each other. Um, may we learn again what it means to love you with our whole being, including our minds and hearts, and what it means to love our neighbors. And may that start even just with a few of us in this conversation. Uh, we thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. You would have received this morning, I think, a copy of the syllabus. Did everybody get that? Mm-hmm. We're good. Um, great. Let me just sort of work us, walk us through it very quickly. We are in the second half. The first half um, had much more of a focus on Matthew and Mark, just because of the way things fall out in the Gospels. Um, now we will have more of an emphasis on Luke and John. And in a few minutes, I will um, talk a little bit more about the basic outline of the Gospels that we've seen so far and the distinctives of the four Gospels vis-a-vis each other. Um, but this becomes, I think, for a lot of people, a, a favorite section, partly because of Luke. Um, so if either Mark or Matthew was a favorite during the fall semester for you, um, you might want to get ready for the for the probability that Luke will become your favorite uh, in the next couple of weeks. And then after that, when we get to John, who knows, John may become your favorite. Um, But it is fascinating that Luke will include um, a number of things that are unique and additional to Luke and some of many people's favorite uh, elements, if you will, Uh, not to be reductionistic about it. But at any rate, uh, there are no prerequisites for this, no required readings, but there's no question the value of this class will uh, track very closely to the amount of time you spend reading the gospel text outside of class. I do have the schedule uh, for the classes and the readings, suggested readings on the back of the syllabus, um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, We are offering the class twice, both of them in Zoom formats. Uh, You're welcome to come to either one. So if for some reason you can't get in on this one on a Wednesday, um, you will be uh, uh, welcome to come in the afternoon session at three. And then we will also be making an audio recording of each session available. And you'll be able to find that on the website. Uh, I think each of you is registered. So you're all good on that. Thank you for doing that. Um, and let me know if you have any questions about any of the logistics or, or whatever. Everyone is welcome in this class, whatever your views are, whatever your views of these texts or of Jesus may be. Um, I am just unabashedly a Christian. I, I, I take seriously these texts and, and see them 
um, particularly, I see all of them saying the same thing, but it's particularly the Gospels of Luke and John that um, that strike me as the decisive texts here. These these are extraordinary claims being made about Jesus. Uh, who who that individual was is just a huge huge question in terms of human history and of our situation on this planet. Um, I've I've become convinced over decades now, and more and more convinced the more I've read the challenges to this. Um, I've, I've become more and more convinced that that Luke's account is a reliable account. Um, yeah. That Luke's making remarkable claims, but we're um, I, I'm, I'm convinced that it's that it's an accurate account. Um, and John's more philosophical theological account um, gets right at it: is the incarnation an incarnation or not? Um, I think it is, and I think it un- unfolded the way Luke uh, gives it to us in the opening chapters of his gospel. So um, I just find these texts compelling from a historical standpoint. Um, I see them as reliable, and I am I am all in. I, I, I do think Jesus of Nazareth was and is the incarnate Son of God. Um, and so my aim in this, though having said all that, is the same aim I bring when I'm reading Nietzsche or Camus or Augustine or the Apostle Paul. It is to understand the text, to just be able to see it clearly for what it is, to try to take it on its own terms, and then to understand or try to grapple with the significance of what it's saying. Um, So that's what we'll be doing. Um, We'll be doing it today. We'll be doing it each session of the class. But again, whether you see the text as I do or not, please know you're absolutely welcome and your your views and and thoughts and questions are very welcome. Um, There's no better way to enrich these classes than for for students to be asking good, honest questions um, that that arise in the course of this study. Um, While we aren't meeting in person, I'd love to meet with you in person as you would like to. Um, we do have tables outside at Pascal's that I love to use and meet folks at. Um, so it's nice to be able to find some outdoor space where we can actually sit and talk. And while masks are required inside there, um, it's nice, honestly, to be able to sit outside. I have uh, hearing loss. And so I've discovered in the last year that I read lips apparently way more than I ever thought I did. Um, so this whole thing with people wearing masks has become a challenge for me. And it's nice, uh, honestly, one of the silver linings of Zoom is that I can see you uh, talking to me when we have those conversations. The schedule then is on the back of the syllabus. We will be flying through. Um, I won't even bother to read through it, but you can see the uh, the suggested readings there. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that reading in Mark and Matthew here in the in the coming week. Maddie, is that you? Hey, Maddie. I'm Good here. Sorry for being late. That's all right. Um, and I will say to everybody, this is one of the other silver linings of Zoom, is that some of our dear friends from the past uh, get to join us. Maddie is one of our alums from what year, Maddie? When did you graduate? From, mm, from 2018. 2018, was it? I was in the 2017 seminar. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And just let everybody know uh, where you are and what you're doing now. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm actually, I'm still in Florida because of Zoom. Um, I'm at my parents' house still, but heading back up to Pennsylvania, to Penn State. Um, I started a PhD program there in the fall. So thankfully, everything is remote and I've gotten 
some good time at home, but that's where I'm supposed to be right now. Yeah, so, yeah. so you yeah. are you are at Penn State these days uh, doing PhD. Yeah, good exactly. to see you again. Um, yeah, we just walked through the syllabus, um, and then uh, and any questions from anybody on what we're doing or how we're doing? We're good. I mentioned that I am a uh, old. I'm sorry, doctor. Dr. Horner. Yeah. Quick question. Yeah. If we can't attend this class, it's okay just to go to the afternoon class, right? Right. Okay. I assumed it was, but yeah, I'll I'll work hard to stay on the same schedule in both classes. So uh, yes, you can do that, and then the audio recording will be available. uh, Okay. Great. Four hours after the class. Thanks. Anything else? Uh, as I say, the Zoom stuff is is kind of a, a challenge for me, I will admit. Um, if you want to speak up, either just do what Bill did and speak up or sort of wave at me or something, um, I'm not real good at catching things on the chat feature. Um, I, I will say just a couple of little idiosyncratic things. Um, occasionally in this format, it's easy to sort of fall into a more impersonal way of thinking. Um, if you need to chat with your apartment mate about something for 15 seconds, that's okay. But, you know, go ahead and blank out the screen. Uh, it's just, it is distracting, that kind of a thing. And, and otherwise, um, we're all in this together and, and nice to sort of stay focused on, on what we're doing. So let me spend just a few minutes then reviewing. A few of you are new this semester, but for those of you who were with us last semester, it won't hurt either. Um, I do just want to say something about the, the idea of the distinctives, the distinctives of the four Gospels. Um, that is part of what we're trying to do in this class, is we're trying to get the benefit as well as the challenges that come with reading the four Gospels alongside each other and seeing their distinctives and seeing how they do and don't fit together. Um, that's already, I hope, been a fruitful exercise for us in what we've done so far. But to just kind of give you a real big uh, sort of overview quickly, The way I would see the Gospels is that probably Mark is the first Gospel we get. Now, I am torn between whether it would be Matthew or Mark, um, but but for the moment, um, I I think you get those first two, those two first. That part I'm I'm really quite settled on, and that then you get Luke and then you get John. But, But to go with the idea of Mark as the first Gospel, it's the shortest of the four. It is, it reads quickly, meaning it moves fast. We don't have any birth narratives or any mention of the birth. Within just a few verses, we've met John the Baptist and very quickly moved into the beginning of Jesus's public ministry at which he calls disciples and they start to walk with him. My suggestion would be that the gospel of Mark works really nicely as a telling of the story of Jesus from the standpoint of his followers, his closest followers, his disciples. And and a lot of what you will see throughout Mark then, I think fits really well in this in this idea that we are seeing them grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and their faith in him and their commitment to him. Um, you see it both in its positive and negative ways. Uh, it is interesting that Almost everything you find in Mark, you will find in at least one of the other Gospels. There are just a couple of very, very small exceptions, but I think they are telling exceptions. Um, one of them is the miracle of Jesus healing um, a dumb man and <clears throat> a dumb and deaf man. And the other one is him healing a blind man. 
in both cases, I think what we've got are miracles that are not only demonstrations of Jesus' power and his compassion for people in need, but they are also illustrative miracles. They are positioned in such a way in the narrative that I think they are clearly meant to give the disciples themselves a picture of themselves and, and in their own developing um walk with Christ. So the picture of the deaf and dumb man being healed and giving ears to hear and a mouth to speak is a picture of what's happening to the disciples themselves. The picture of him healing the blind man then in the next chapter, and I believe these are um, chapter seven and eight in Mark, um, is, is that strange miracle in which Jesus seems to have to do it twice he heals the blind man and he still isn't seeing clearly. He says, I see people, but they're kind of like trees walking around. And then Jesus touches his eyes again and the man sees clearly. Again, this comes in, in, in the narrative where the question of what the disciples do and don't understand about Jesus and particularly at that point, his development of the theme of bread and living bread. Um, I, I think it, it, it appears in such a way then that it's a great picture of the disciples of their own growth of what they don't see and of the fact that they do see, but they don't see completely and of the picture of Jesus's work in, in their lives. The other thing that's going on in those kinds of miracles um, is that they are miracles that attest to the messianic claims and the messianic role of Jesus. If you were to go back to Isaiah, and we won't do this right now, but chapters in Isaiah that often get overlooked, uh, the 30s. Um, chapter 30 is uh, 28 through 35, probably. And I think it culminates really in chapter 35. It, ha- it talks about the day of the Lord that will come and it will be marked by the, the lame walking, the dumb speaking, the deaf hearing, the blind seeing. And so these miracles do, do that kind of work as well. So there's a lot going on, it seems to me, um, in, in many of these episodes. Uh, and, and so you, you have obviously the compassion of Jesus, his power to heal and that confrontation of Jesus with demonic and spiritual powers of darkness. And Mark is very much a story of that. Um, and then you have the, the, the attestation to his messianic standing. And then you have, um, the picture of the disciples and their walk with him. There's very little of Jesus's teaching in the gospel of Mark. A lot of action. And, and that is, that is where you also see very clearly, um, Jesus steps right out, declares the kingdom has come, and it is a head on collision between God and the forces of darkness. And to read the gospel that way, I think, is is an interesting um, exercise. I, I'd encourage you to do get a little taste of Mark and at least read a couple of chapters at the beginning and and see that the rapidity, the action, the, this confrontation. Matthew, then, um, as a second gospel, it always appears first in the, the New Testaments that we have. I, I know of no exceptions to that, uh, back through the ancient and medieval literature. Um, Matthew is always the first gospel. And it would seem that it's there particularly because it is a, a gospel about Jesus, the news about Jesus that is engaged very clearly with the Hebrew uh, um 
uh, community, with the Hebrew scriptures, with Hebrew religion. And it is making the claim very clearly that Jesus is that Messiah or Christ that had been anticipated in those scriptures. Matthew, when you put it alongside Mark, creates some problems. And I'll I'll move a little bit more rapidly through Matthew than I probably should. But anytime you want to ask questions, feel free. Um, what happens when you put Matthew's gospel alongside Mark's is that you do have some tensions, some contradictions, really, in how the story is told. Um, they are not giving us events in the same order, certainly. Uh, and there are some very clear examples of that, more than one. Um, what, and, and so you, you have a sense that something's, something's going on here and, and it's hard to know what's going on here. Um, to me, the, the, the key then comes in, in opening up the gospel of Luke and saying, okay, if, if Luke comes along side Matthew and Mark, can it help us understand what's going on between Matthew and Mark? And I think the answer is yes, it can. Um, we did a handout last semester where we put those three gospels alongside each other. And when we do that, it turns out that Luke affirms the chronology in Mark at point after point after point after point. It is interesting that at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he states explicitly that his purpose is to give an orderly account. He refers to the fact that others have given accounts. Um, so he's already got some other accounts available to him. And I think this would clearly be Matthew and Mark. What else it would be? We don't know. But what he wants to do then is give an orderly. And by that, I would take him to mean chronologically ordered account of Jesus's life and ministry. You then have um, Luke uh, lining up with Mark at point after point after point. And so that pushes us back to the Gospel of Matthew to say, okay, if Matthew's the odd one out, what's going on here? And I think then we're sort of forced to read Matthew more carefully, more closely, and a couple of different things start to emerge. One is the structuring of the book. Matthew goes back and forth between a section of events, typically miracles, but sort of say events generally, and then teaching, and then events, and then teaching, and then events, and then teaching. It's a five-fold structure, and it does help us see that he's organizing the material somehow in which he then presents it that way. So that the first four chapters are the birth and the early events, particularly around John the Baptist ministry and Jesus's involvement with John. In chapters five to seven, you have what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew presents this teaching as um, a single sermon. He presents it as very early, it would seem, in the ministry, if you're thinking this is at all chronological. And then in chapters eight and nine, we go back to a bunch of events, primarily a series of miracles. Chapter 10, we get into the teaching to the disciples as he calls them and sends them. It's interesting in chapter 10, for instance, where Jesus calls disciples, trains disciples, and sends disciples. You have to go to about six different places in the Gospel of Luke to get everything that's in chapter 10 of Matthew. So Matthew is apparently ordering his material in a particular way. I would argue that what he's doing then is he is ordering the material around the argument that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I want to be careful. All four Gospels argue that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, Christ just being the 
the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. All four Gospels argue that Jesus is the Christ, but Matthew organizes his Gospel around that argument. And so as he begins, he is initially tying Jesus into the Old Testament writings repeatedly in the genealogy that links him to David and Abraham, particularly in the birth in which citations of the Old Testament are repeated frequently. And then in the beginnings of Jesus's ministry, where the link into the Hebrew scriptures continues to play a prominent role. And then what Matthew does is present Jesus as the, the, the Christ who is bringing the new kingdom, um, the new king. And so you have the sermon as a kind of kingdom manifest. And at the end of it, what Matthew notes is that people recognize the authority of Jesus in the way he talked. And so it moves then to from, from the rootedness in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures to the authority that Jesus had in his messianic role. First in his teaching in Matthew 5 to 7, which again is full of interpreting of the Old Testament Scriptures, and then in his works of power or his miracles in chapters 8 and 9. When we did that study of chapters 8 and 9 last fall, what we saw then was that while they're in a different order than you get them in Mark and Luke, the order that you do get is an interesting sequence that seems to move from the least to the greatest, if you will. It starts with sort of general healings of people who are sick, Peter's mother-in-law and some others like that. And then it moves from sickness through a sequence of, of Jesus demonstrating his power over demons, his power over nature and the storm of the sea, his power over sin, and ultimately his power over death. And so the sequence moves in that order. And I think that Matthew is simply saying, with, well, he's not telling us, but what he's doing is ordering those miracles in order to make his argument and build it and build it and build it um, through those two chapters. I think that's the kind of thing we see through Matthew throughout. Um, we'll revisit some of that kind of question as we continue this semester. But a tremendous amount of that question really shows up in those first 16 chapters of Matthew. And, and one of the things we will see this semester is that um, as we move on through Luke uh, from this point forward, Luke will have many things in his account that Matthew, in the second half of, of Luke's gospel, that Matthew had included in the first half of the gospel. So so the other thing Matthew seems to have been doing was building his gospel and building his argument through the point that we got to in December, or whatever it was, um, where Peter makes his profession that Jesus is the Christ. And that's a sort of a climax and culmination of 16 chapters of an argument in, in Matthew. So then we've introduced Luke, and my argument about Luke is that Luke does have Matthew and Mark in front of him. He recognizes there's a problem, and readers are going to be puzzled and confused. So Luke offers a chronological account, as he says in the beginning, and then he also is clarifying wherever there's confusion between Matthew and Mark. And then the third thing I think Luke is doing, and we will enjoy this semester, is that he is he is complementing those accounts, meaning not not saying that these are good accounts, but complementing in the sense that he is adding material and adding some uh, wonderful episodes and teachings of Jesus um, as as he goes uh, forward with it. 
that, yeah, on the, the, on the clarification question where Luke is clarifying confusion between Matthew and Mark, it is interesting to see that when Matthew and Mark get to a place where they actually agree and give the events in the same order, Luke drops out. So that what we saw right toward the end of the semester was that when you get to the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew and Mark then include several episodes before you get to Peter's profession of faith, which is this high point in all four of the, of the gospel accounts. Matthew and Mark include several episodes, including, for instance, the feeding of the 4,000 and, and some other things and a couple of uh, bits of teaching. Um, because those things all come in the same order in Matthew and Mark, I would argue, Luke knows he doesn't need to bother. And so he skips from the feeding of the 5,000 right to uh, Peter's profession of faith. Now, it is that profession of faith, then, that I think is the is the sort of high water mark of the Gospels to this point, certainly. And that's what we got to in the first half of this class. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us that account where Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do people say I am? And then he asks them, and who do you say I am? Peter famously responds, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus affirms him in that understanding. And then the next things that happen out of Jesus's mouth are that he is on his way to Jerusalem to be killed and to be raised from the dead. And then the second thing he does is call his followers to follow him, to deny themselves, to take up their cross and to follow him. This is this is the decisive moment. It's in Matthew 16. Mark 8 and Luke 9. There is a parallel to that moment in John's gospel in chapter 6. To say just a word about John's gospel, then John's gospel, um, the first four chapters all come very early on in the, in the story of Jesus. They all, uh, come, come in the period where John the baptizer is still at work. Um, and it's only after John is put in prison, and this is consistent in the four gospels, after John is put into prison, that Jesus steps out into his public ministry. You don't get to that point until chapter five of John's gospel. And in chapter six, you've got the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus's discourse about the bread and, and about him being that bread, which comes down out of heaven. That concludes with a discussion with his own disciples about the fact that other people are finding Jesus's teaching just weird and even sounding cannibalistic or something just weird and beyond words and they are leaving and he asks them what will you do and again peter is the one who speaks and says to whom would we go you have the words of eternal life and so john brings his gospel to that same important point of clarity with regard to who jesus is and clarity with regard to what is in front of jesus with regard to his trip to the cross and clarity with regard to the call to his followers to take following seriously and to recognize that, it's, that it is a step of denial of self and even simply of dying um, in order to follow this one who is on his way to Jerusalem to die. It's then at that point we pick up the story in, in this semester and do so today. Um, and uh, I want to go ahead and do that. But let me just pause. Are there questions? Um, about anything that I've just tried to summarize up to this point. 
Um, go ahead and get the other handout then in front of you, if you would. This is, um, uh, it's two-sided. The front is the transfiguration. And then the back is the episode that follows immediately upon um, the transfiguration. Uh, so let's look at the transfiguration account. And this is what we did conclude with last semester. Uh, my apologies to you who are who are getting a review. I hope you're okay with a little bit of a review here. It's a, it's a significant moment, particularly given the context that I've just outlined, that we have just hit this high water mark in the gospel accounts, all four of them. And now Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this episode of Jesus going up the mountain, taking Peter, James, and John with him, and being transfigured. I love how the gospel writers strain to capture what this looked like. Matthew, his face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. Mark, his garments became radiant and exceeding white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I love Mark. Mark's also sort of your blue collar account, I think. And he's thinking in terms of laundry people and gardeners. Um, so he's, he's trying to capture this, this appearance. Luke, um, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And I think this is one of the occasions where I'm using the new international version. I don't usually, um, I'm not sure why they say gleaming there. It, it's, it's actually like lightning. Um, that's, that's the real imagery there of being like lightning. You see them straining to kind of capture what's going on here. And then you have Moses and Elijah appearing to him. Moses and Elijah. And I won't elaborate as we did last, uh, last session, but just remember these are forerunners of Jesus. These are people whose ministries pointed forward to him. Moses being the lawgiver who gave us the Torah and so many images that Jesus would fulfill. Um, Elijah, the great prophet, who was himself a forerunner to Elisha, he was the, 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 the heroic figure who stood up against the forces of darkness of his day. They appear as forerunners to Jesus. They also appear as fruit of his ministry. Luke tells us, I love the way he puts it in verse 31, that Moses and Elijah appeared in their glory. Um, they are now glorified through the work that Jesus is about to accomplish. This is that kind of affirmation of what Jesus said at one point, that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And his reference was to people like Abraham and Moses and Elijah. These are the living now glorified. And there is this moment, it seems to me very clearly that this is for Jesus it is for his followers, but it is also for Jesus. Remember, this is, this is the turning point. This is, we are now on the road to Jerusalem and I will be killed. Jesus doesn't do that lightly. Okay. Jesus needs his own encouragement. He needs his own vision clarified. And this is that kind of clarifying moment for Jesus. Paul tells us that when the Son of God became incarnate, he set aside 
his prerogatives of, of being God, of he, he emptied himself. In, in, and in this moment, Jesus himself and these three followers with him get a reality check on who Jesus actually is and on the glory that is, in fact, rightfully his, the glory that he has given up. It is the glory for which he will long and pray on the night of his death when he says in John 17, you know, that, that he is looking to the glory um, with which that, that he had had before becoming Jesus on this planet. It is the glory that the writer of Hebrews writes about in chapter 12 when he says, for the glory set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So here is this moment of clarity to see things honestly, as they rightly are, and to see the full glory of these who are now glorious in and because of the work of Jesus Christ. Luke also has this wonderful little phrase that he tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, the word there is significant. The word for departure is exodus. They are talking to Jesus about his own exodus in which he is heading toward that Jordan um, of his own where he will die on a cross. In this moment, there is a voice from the father. This is my beloved son. And in all three accounts, listen to him. It is interesting. This is very similar to what you had at the beginning of Jesus's ministry when the dove ascends on him in his baptism and a voice speaks from heaven. The phrase that's added here is listen to him. Um, we read in all three of these accounts that the disciples then go face down in the dirt when this cloud rolls in and the voice speaks. They are overwhelmed by the glory of God. And they see in this moment the glory of God in the face of Christ in this very distinctive and striking way. Um, I sent you a link to some Christmas meditations that we just did in our um, study center newsletter. That newsletter comes out on Fridays, and I'd love for you to link into it or, or register for it. Um, but, but I encourage you to look at that little sequence I did um, for this, the four weeks of Advent. Um, because what it does is draw on this Pauline phrase from Second uh, Corinthians 4, I believe it is, um, that God has revealed um, knowledge of the glory of God in face of Christ. Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ is a wonderful phrase for how to read the Gospels. Um, in this moment, we have the glory of God in the face of Christ in this really remarkable way. But I would suggest, as I do in those essays, that the real glory is revealed not in spectacular moments like this, but in the far more mundane um, aspects of who, who Jesus was, that, that there was a kind of a humbling of God by his own choice, that he would not only become incarnate and become one of us, which is humbling enough, but he's born in a barn, laid in a bed of straw, born into poverty. The, the, the humbling of God is really quite remarkable. And I encourage you to look at those meditations for that. And then I would say in this moment of the transfiguration, the, really the fullness of the glory of the character of God that's revealed here 
Yes, it's in this transfiguration, but then it's in this moment that only Matthew includes the detail on. And that is, after the cloud is cleared and the voice is spoken, the guys are face down in the dirt, literally terrified. Jesus comes over to them and Matthew says in verse 7 that Jesus came over to them, touched them and said, you can get up now. You don't need to be afraid. And I love this image of Jesus going over to these guys and just tapping them on the shoulder or the back of the head saying, okay, guys, it's safe now. You can get up. And they hear his voice and they look up and it's just him. And they go, ah. Oh. And, and they are, they are then confronted with a revelation of the glory of God in the face of Christ because that character of compassion of mercy, of kindness, of humbling is what they see. There's way more that could be said. We we did more with this uh, in our last session last semester, but let me take us on down the hill. If you flip that over, um, and we'll finish with this in just a few minutes that we have. You have the three accounts of what happens when they come back down the mountain. It's striking, just visually, you can see Mark has a lot more, doesn't he? And this is the other aspect of Mark, is that while it's the shortest gospel and virtually everything is duplicated in some other gospel, you do have um, details that Mark includes that the other gospels do not. And they almost always strike me as having to do with the disciples' experience of the event. The the single most striking example of that in this case is the interchange between between Jesus and the father of this boy. Jesus confronts a crowd, and in the crowd are all of his other disciples and the father and this little boy and a bunch of onlookers. This little boy has been troubled by an evil spirit, a demon. Physically, it's described as as um, in in several ways, but particularly. Um, uh, as convulsions and seizures um, that, that threaten his life because it can throw him into a fire or drown him. I, it's just a horrid, horrid thing. Now, Jesus has given these disciples power to heal, and they have been working healing miracles themselves. But the first thing Jesus confronts when he comes down off the mountain is this father, desperate, with his son that's so needy and and the disciples were not able to help. I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't heal him. Jesus has just had this moment with his heavenly father in glory. And now he confronts this desperate father in the brokenness of this world. And the juxtaposition of these two things is very striking and very powerful. Mark gives us the exchange between the man and Jesus. Jesus asks him some details about his son and says, do you believe? What do you mean if I can help? And the boy's father cries out and says, I do believe, help my unbelief. It's unique to Mark. It is indicative, again, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be in process. And it is a phrase that most of us who try to follow Jesus um, identify with quite readily. When Jesus confronts this moment, he says, 
and it's here in all of them. Um, Matthew verse 17. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Mark verse 16. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Verse 41 of Luke, Jesus answers and says, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Um, These are not words that we normally run to when we want to capture the reality of Jesus and his his ways. Um, But I encourage you to to linger over those words. As I grew up, I grew up on the King James Bible, and then the phrase was something about, oh, thou faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I live, be with you, etc. And 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 it's only been more recently as some kind of an adult where, where I think I started to actually hear these words and see them in this moment where Jesus comes off of this mountain where he has a vision of reality and and it is full of glory and it is full of the possibilities <laughs> that are now real in Moses and Elijah and and from that mountaintop he then descends into this valley and he confronts this desperate broken world of evil and sickness and death and faithlessness and and the best that this world has had to offer, his own followers <laughs> who are doing absolutely their best to walk with him, are are failing in this moment themselves. And Jesus doesn't mince words. I mean, he just he just groans. He feels this keenly. He feels it deeply, deeper than any of us can manage. And he just goes, Oh. You bunch of faithless, perverted, broken so-and-sos. How long do I have to live in this world? How long do I have to put up with you? This is a very real agony. It is, how long? Ah, It is a powerful, powerful moment. Um, and I, and I hope, I hope you can identify with him, both in having moments of sort of epiphanies where you, where you see things that are just so full of wonder. And you experience things that are so deeply beautiful <laughs> and right and good. And you get a little taste. And, and, and then, and, and that becomes part of the context of your whiny complaining moments. I, I, you know, for me, music is one of these places. It just is, uh, one of the great losses this year, Christmas was I didn't get to have the lessons and carol service at First Presbyterian Church that, that has been such a regular part of my, my wife and my celebration of, of Jesus's birth. Um, and, and every year when I go there, there's always these wonderful moments. Um, but, but the one, the, uh, and here's where I'll, I'll have a hard time putting this out. 
this moment in the third stanza of O Come All You Faithful, the word of the Father now in flesh appearing. And every year I say to myself, I'm going to sing it this year. I'm going to get that phrase out. And then we get there and the orchestra is playing and the timpani are in and the 50 voice choir has now surrounded all of us and we are all singing and you hit this moment and it's a, it's a key change and a modulation and it soars. Word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Yeah. Absolutely a kind of an epiphany of, of goodness and beauty. But most music isn't that. And most of my experiences of music aren't that. And, and there's this juxtaposition. Where, where in your life do you get some little piece of what Jesus is dealing with in this moment? And, and he's torn and it's an agony. Ah. Oh. And then he answers this question. Ah. Oh. Bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. And he heals him. And and I don't include this, but the next lines in all three of these Gospels is Jesus saying once again to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me and I'm going to be raised from the dead. This is this is such a moment. Um and and it is it is this decisive moment. Jesus will stay as long as he needs to stay to accomplish what he came to do. He answers his own question, and that's how he answers it. And in the immediate moment, it is bring the boy to me. And in the longer term, it is we are going to Jerusalem, and nobody and no thing is going to stop me from doing what I came here to do. I will stay as long as I need to to get done what the Father and I have agreed I have come to do. And he is on his road to Jerusalem. Time to stop. Um, we will then look next week at the shorter versions of that road to Jerusalem that Matthew and Mark give us. And then after that, we'll spend a couple of weeks in Luke's much longer version of that road. Um, we got to go. And if anybody needs to just go quick, uh, please feel free to do so. If anybody wants to stay um, and chat or talk more, I'm glad to do that too. I'll try to end up five minutes early instead of five minutes late. So we can at least have that kind of time. Um, but feel free also to get in touch with me. Um, email is always good. I'm that old fashioned um, that uh, you can contact me by email and love to have conversations that way or uh, sit out in front of the building and, and talk as well. Yeah. Again, good to see you all. Glad we're into this and looking forward to the semester.